What better on a late Saturday afternoon than Romans chapter 9? A simple, uncontroversial passage, universally loved, constantly preached upon, regularly memorized by young children. I don't know of a chapter off the top of my head that has been the agent of more theological change in believers' lives as they get to grips with it. I can think of personal friend after personal friend who has walked into a serious engagement with Romans 9 thinking one thing, and after only spending a few months with it, has come out a different person. Romans 9 is much like the rest of Romans. It is by Paul. It's full of quotations from the Old Testament, 13 or 14, full of Christian truth. I want us to look at it in our time now, just briefly at the problem which Paul presents in the first five verses. And then I want us to spend most of our time looking at Paul's solution to this problem that he presents, uh, the solution verses 6 to 33. And I pray that as we do, you may be helped in considering more of what God is like and of what he's done and of what you should do. It's striking that this comes right after the moving climax to Paul's presentation of the gospel that Greg just led us in considering. But it seems like that ecstasy of praise for salvation brought to Paul's mind a painful thought that perhaps you can have some vague and dim experience of if you reflect on family members who are not saved. The problem that he saw was simply does Israel's rejection of Jesus mean that God's word has failed? Does Israel's rejection of Jesus mean that God's word has failed? That's what he's considering in these first five verses. Look with me at the beginning of Romans chapter 9, verse 1. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. Okay, whatever, Paul is about to go on and say, we get the sense it must be important. Why else would he start protesting his truthfulness? Well, we assume, Paul, you're going to tell us the truth. I think he's doing it to emphasize what he's about to say in verse 2. Perhaps he knew that some would have been presenting him otherwise than as loving toward his own people. And so he goes on and he says in verse 2, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. So again, sorry to, to pause. I, part of me just wants to read the whole chapter, but there's so little time and so much to say. If nothing else, we see here that Paul is clearly facing a problem that is not merely intellectual for him. It may be that some young men, maybe in seminary, maybe in junior high, the two phases of life are much alike. <laughs> it may be that some will think of questions of election and predestination uh, in a kind of sci-fi way. 
Paul does not interact with the topic in any way like that. Uh, this is a deeply emotional, heart-wrenching uh, subject for Paul. He says in verse 2, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Verse 3, 4, I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. So you see what he's saying. Paul wishes to be able to give the Israelites spiritual life, even if it costs him his own relationship with God. Now, the verb tense isn't quite so straightforward. At least he's saying that he could entertain such a wish were it possible. What he's doing is agonizing over Israel's rejection of Jesus because he understands that to be a rejection of God. And so they have merited really terrible peril before God. They have put themselves in a desperate position. You know, when I read this, I think of what Moses himself said when the people, remember, had erected the golden calf in Exodus 32, and Moses prayed, please forgive their sin, but if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. Well, here Paul, like Moses before him, seems to have been willing to have been blotted out, cut off for the sake of his people so great was his love for them. So friends, you will best consider the doctrine of election from a heart full of love for God supremely, but for other people as well. At least in part, Paul's impetus for feeling so strongly must have come from all the advantages and privileges that Israel had enjoyed, uh, their current unbelief notwithstanding. You see there in verse 4, theirs is the adoption of sons. Uh, there's the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the, the promises. He, he keeps going, listing the, the benefits Israel had received, all climaxing in Christ there in verse 5. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. They had been the very nation from which Christ had come. But now... These benefits unused become benefits abused. And so they, in fact, become liabilities. What a summary of blessings and of blessings gone bad. And did you notice there in verse 5 that Christ is explicitly called God? Well, there's some question about where the sentence begins or ends. I think the NIV here agrees with most of the commentators in understanding Paul here to be very clearly calling Christ God. You realize the Bible teaches that, <laughs> that Christ is God. Oh, friends, you laugh, but there are a billion Muslims in the world who don't know that. And there are some Muslims here in Albuquerque. There are hundreds of thousands of Jehovah's Witnesses who don't know that. There are people sadly dwelling in churches founded and paid for by Bible believers that are now inhabited by liberal mainline Protestant unbelievers who don't know this and don't believe this. So I just want to point it out. It's clear in the Bible. Christ is God. He is fully divine. Christ himself taught in such a way that his teachings only make sense if we believe his claims to be God. Most astonishing to us is his resurrection. 
That's how we see most clearly his deity, that after he died on the cross as a substitute for the sins of all of us who would turn from our sins and trust in him, God raised him from the dead. Well, this is the basis for this chapter, understanding who Jesus is, which is precisely what most of the Jews of Paul's day and of our own don't do. There was an issue of Commentary Magazine, which is an intellectual Jewish policy review, published, I think, in D.C., uh, a few years ago, which debated the core of Jewish identity. Uh, was it religious or was it ethnic? And if any of you hear of Jewish background, you know that's a perennial discussion in the Jewish community. And at the end of the day, the contributors to the symposium couldn't agree. You know the one thing they all agreed on, the one thing, literally, that they all agreed on, was that in order to be Jewish, it by definition includes rejecting Jesus' claim to be the Messiah. Friend, does that make your heart go out to them? Some years ago, I had the privilege of being involved in a Jewish evangelical Christian dialogue. There were three of us evangelical ministers and three rabbis, an Orthodox rabbi, a conservative rabbi, and a Reform rabbi. And at one point, after one of the evangelical ministers had explained that we Christians understand evangelism to be a loving thing to do, one of the Jewish rabbis looked at us and asked us, could you please stop loving us so much? <laughs> now, whether he meant that with a kind of sympathetic exasperation or an exasperated sarcasm, we could only respond that Christ's love compels us. Do you feel a little bit of what Paul's feeling here in these first few verses of Romans 9? Paul is right to sense that here, given all their privileges, all their unbelief seems to be very unnatural. And so his heart goes out to them in love. You realize zeal for God includes this kind of self-forgetfulness? When you're really zealous for God, you can become strangely careless about your own rights and privileges. You want to see others one and blessed. Well, for you, maybe it's another group. Without all the advantages of the Jewish people, but no less beloved you, by you, maybe, as I say, it's your family or, or your friends or you know, the Greek community or the Vietnamese community. Maybe you feel that it's people from Missouri or retired people or Roman Catholic family members who don't seem to understand God's grace or young people who work downtown or in state government over in Santa Fe. Well, whatever it is, realize that as Christians, our conversion is not supposed to truncate our love for people. Our conversion inflames our love for other people. Paul's new Christian family here clearly did not eliminate his natural family. He loved his new Christian family. He continued to love his old family of the flesh. His heart was moved. His hope was stirred. Oh, friends, I would not want you to study the book of Romans and get all into doctrine and decide that stoicism and resignation are the mainstays of true Christian spirituality. Because Paul here is moved. He's moved in love. He's moved to say what seemed to me nearly reckless things. Love for others and ultimately love for God is. Paul's heart was a heart here for God to see him get the honor due to him. Brothers and sisters, if, if our hearts were more full of love, we would be more acquainted with the kind of pain that Paul is expressing here. 
But we need to move on to what we want to spend most of our time on, and that's Paul's solution to this problem. And it's found in the biblical teaching of God's election. So yes, let's just begin by framing this correctly. Election is not the problem. Election is the solution. Let me say that again. Election is not the problem. Election is the solution. That's what Paul says in the rest of this chapter, verses 6 to 33. So in following Paul's argument here, I just want to lay out for you seven statements about God's election. I see that's very kind of me. Because as I say, it's Saturday afternoon, it's late. And this is like the 43rd sermon you've heard in a row in the last 24 hours. So you're thinking, I love the book of Romans, I'm a little tired, I wonder what's on TV. Well, to make it easier for you, I have seven statements. And when that seventh statement is done, I really am done. So it's like seven little mini sermons. So you can just get yourself up to like, I can make it through another one. That was just a couple paragraphs, you know, and we just, we make it through. We're going through the verses. We're being instructed and edified. So I think it's doable. First, Paul presents the fact that God's election, here's the first thing, is not simply physical. God's election is not simply physical. We see this just in verses six and seven. Many people in Paul's day probably assume that God's choice of Abraham's descendants extended to all of Abraham's descendants. I think of the time when Jesus was disputing with the crowd in John 8. Do you remember this? And three times they countered Jesus' teaching by asserting that, what are you saying? We're, we're Abraham's children. But Paul here, having learned from Rabbi Jesus, began to make sense of the Jewish rejection of Jesus by presenting the fact that not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. By which he meant simply, not all Jews are elected, chosen by God. Look at verse 6. It is not as though God's word had failed. And that word failed or being ineffective basically means to, to fall. Paul was saying God's word has not fallen powerlessly to the ground. He goes on. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Now stop there. This is Paul's basic point in chapters 9, 10, and 11. It's right there. This is his thesis statement. This is the sentence that will make sense of Romans chapter 9 and Romans chapter 10 and Romans chapter 11. Don't take your eye off it when you're trying to find your way through these chapters. Not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. God's word has not failed because not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Paul gives his summary answer in the form of a kind of play on words. Not all from Israel are Israel. So the question becomes not why is God unfaithful, but rather who is really Israel? And Paul goes on to make his case in verse 7. Nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. He had other descendants, Ishmael. He's quoting Genesis 21, 12 here, proving that not all of Abraham's descendants were to be reckoned as his children in terms of being the recipients of the promise. Remember back in Genesis 17, God had made it clear that he would have some blessings for Ishmael. But his covenant would be established through Isaac's line. So already in the very genesis of the promise, there were some 
children of Abraham who were not included in the promises to Abraham. So Paul, like a careful exegete, he's noticing what's already happened there in Genesis, right after the promises come. So this idea of being careful to define who is really a Jew was an idea that Paul had already introduced back in chapter 2 that we looked at last night. You may have remembered that. Right there at the end of Romans 2, verse 28, a man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not the written code. So God's election is not the same thing as an outward calling. All the Jews had an outward calling. All of them who heard God's word had an outward calling, but they were not all true Israel. That's what Paul is beginning to suggest here. Friends, practically what that means is you cannot inherit a good relationship with God. You cannot inherit a good relationship with God. God's saving grace doesn't come from sharing the blood of your parents, but only by sharing in the blood of Christ. We should move on. That's all the time for sermon number one. <laughs> Much more that we could say. Okay, Paul has established that God's election, his choice doesn't follow physical bloodlines. So God's election is not simply physical. Now, a second truth about God's election, number two, God's election is based in himself. And that's what we see here in verses eight to 13. Uh, many then thought, and many think now, that God's choice is based in some characteristic of the chosen or the rejected. Uh, so medieval Roman Catholics thought it was based, uh, many medieval Roman Catholics thought it was based in meritorious deeds foreseen. 17th century Arminians thought it was based upon faith foreseen. But here in Romans 9 verses 8 to 13, Paul teaches that God's promises to Abraham are fulfilled by those whom God has chosen as Greg was just saying from Deuteronomy 7, for no other reason than that he has chosen them. And he knows that this might upset some of his readers, especially if those who aren't chosen are part of God's special people, Israel, ethnically. And so he goes to the Old Testament for a couple of examples to help illustrate this. First, you see in verse 8, we see Paul's first example. Look at verse 8. Romans 9, verse 8. In other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. That is Abraham's children, the heirs of the promise. So he's saying they're not merely the natural children, which would include Ishmael, but they're the children of promise, which would only be through Isaac. And then Paul goes on to quote God's promise from Genesis 18. We find this here in verse nine. For this is how the promise was stated at the appointed time I will return and Sarah will have a son. And of course, Sarah's son was Isaac. But Paul realizes that since Ishmael was the son of Sarah's maid, Hagar, this choice of God's could be misunderstood as having still something to do with differences between the people chosen. So Paul gives a second, even clearer example of God's choice being based on nothing in us. Isaac and Rebekah's twins that they had. Same father, like the previous example, but this time what's different, same mother also. Even twins. Look at verse 10. Not only that, but Rebekah's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac, yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's 
purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. So before they had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose would stand, and that's uh, in contrast with the question in verse 6 of whether God's word had fallen. So in order that God's word would stand, you see what Paul is saying here. He's saying that God is sovereign and that his choice, his election of people is based in himself. And in his mysterious will, his actions are not based on human actions. In fact, Paul is at pains here to show that God paid no regard whatsoever to what they had done. God's election is not because of anything in the person. There was nothing in Jacob that drew God's favor. No no foreseen merit, no foreseen faith. Both Esau and Jacob were children of Adam, sinners by nature, as Calvin says, not possessed of a single particle of righteousness. Election is from God alone. His reasons for choosing one and not another are inscrutable to us. That means we are not able to scrut them. (laughs) We cannot scrutinize them. We cannot read them or figure them out. So you can have all the questions you want on this panel we're about to have. And unless Greg and I start lying, we cannot answer them. His reasons for his election are inscrutable. He has his own purposes for saving those he does. And since they are his purposes, we can be certain that they will be fulfilled. Paul could console himself as he looked on the people rejecting Jesus as the Christ, knowing that God was sovereign. Again, as John Calvin said, quote, In the salvation of the godly, we are to look for no higher cause than the goodness of God. And no higher cause in the destruction of the reprobate than his just severity. I understand the impulse some have to rationalize election. I have been a Calvinist three times and an Arminian twice. Seriously, I was like, Calvinist, Arminian, Calvinist, Arminian, Calvinist, and that stuck. I understand, friends, the the desire to, to try to put something about the person who's chosen as part of the reason why God chose, but the but there are four clear contradictions of trying to abort anything having to do with the person in and of themselves in this business of God's election. So in these, this second example that Paul gives, it's really airtight. Before the twins were born, before the twins had done anything good or bad, three, in order that God's purpose in election might stand. Verse 12, not by works, but by him who calls. I mean, he just couldn't be any clearer. Before birth, before any actions, God's purpose by God. You see how Paul is at pains to make clear that God's choice is based in God and not in anything in us. Paul uses two verses, which are examples of this. The, the last phrase of Genesis 25, 23 is quoted there in verse 12. The older will serve the younger. And then in verse 13, Paul quotes a whole different part of the Bible. He quotes the prophets. He quotes Malachi 1, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Both of these, Paul understands to be making the case. So since we're looking at all of chapter 9, we don't have time to camp on verse 13. But I just have to pause because God's statement here, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated, always gets people's attention. And it's a verse I think that's easily misused. 
In the context of Malachi, so this is a post-exilic Israel, the exiles are back from the, the, uh, the Babylonian exile. It's a time of rebuilding. It's the, the last prophet before the heavens go brassy for four centuries and then the Messiah comes uh, after John the Baptist begins. But in the context of, Messiah, of Malachi, God is explaining that he has chosen the nation of Israel and why he's crushed the Edomites, the descendants of Esau. And whatever he may mean by hated there, and there's no special or unusual word for it, it's clear that the point that Malachi is making is the dichotomy, it's the difference between the fate of Israel and the fate of Edom, the fate of Jacob and the fate of Esau. Jacob, God had loved to the point of choosing and saving. Esau, on the other hand, he had clearly passed over. He had neglected. He had thereby excluded him from salvation. So once again, Paul's point here is clear. God is sovereign in his choosing between two twins. The doctrine of election, of course, is not something that's newly mended by Paul in Romans chapter 9. You look at how many times he quotes the Old Testament in this passage. Uh, Jesus taught this so many times. John 13, 18. Jesus says, I know those I have chosen. Uh, friends, this is taught not only in the Old Testament. This is taught not only by Jesus. This is taught not only in Paul. It's even taught by Spurgeon. <laughs> this is what Spurgeon said. I believe the doctrine of election because I'm quite sure that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I'm sure he chose me before I was born or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. <laughs> and he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me for I never could find any reason in myself why she'd have looked upon me in special love. So I'm forced to accept that doctrine. Friends, that sounds right to me. You see how such belief in this doctrine would encourage humility in yourself. You see how it would actually encourage hope in God for others. I'm reminded of that sweet statement of John Newton, who when asked about a particularly hopeless person in his parish in Olney, replied, I've never despaired for any man since God saved me. Friend, do you know what you deserve from God? Do you see his tender mercy in your life? Does that give you hope in your evangelism? As you think of someone in your family, in your neighborhood, someone you've worked with who just seems hard to the gospel? Well, we need to move on, all right? Paul has looked at the problem of the unbelieving Jew. He said the answer is to be found in the Bible's presentation of God's election. One, God's election is not simply physical. Two, God's election is based in himself. Now a third statement about God's election. God's election is just. God's election is just. And this is what we find in verses 14 to 18. And Paul had to raise this because many people then as now think that any such teaching as this is presenting God as being unfair. But Paul begs to differ. And he shows that God has always exercised his right to choose. Look at verse 14. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. You know, people can hear of God's election and think, as some perhaps you right now are thinking, this is monstrous. The God I know would never do this. That's what I actually thought the second time I was an Arminian. That was like, that was a phrase I used against my Calvinist friends. The God I know. Well, I think I was wrong. 
it seems to be the definition of unfairness. Paul had understood that some might think this, but he denies that it's so. Not only is God faithful and sovereign, we see, but God is just. And Paul gives two examples of God's justice from the Hebrew scriptures. In verse 15, we find the first example. Look at verse 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. God's election was just when God had mercy on Moses. This is consistent with the way God revealed himself to Moses. In this quotation from Exodus 33, verse 19, God will have mercy at his discretion. And it's interesting that Paul doesn't so much explain God's justice as defend it by recalling God's mercy. You know that strict fairness is hell for the Christian. If we want fairness, if we demand fairness, we know that we have sinned against a holy God. If we demand precisely what we deserve, no more and no less, just what I deserve, well, then we are all essentially demanding hell. My friends, justice is not the way of salvation for us. Remember all of Paul's discussions of following the law. Where did justice get us in all our law obeying? Romans chapter 3. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Our sin deserves condemnation. Justice is not our need. It is as Portia, disguised as a judge, says to Shylock in Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice, though justice be thy plea, consider this, that in the course of justice, none of us should see salvation. We do pray for mercy. And that's what Paul really says here in verse 16. It does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. It depends not on man, but on God. Not on our works, but on his mercy. And friends, this is the core of true Christian piety. This is really the continental divides of religions. You don't need to be an academic scholar of religions to understand that there are in this world the religions of do and the religion of done. And all the religions, the major world religions, are religions of do. Do this, you'll get this. Do this, you'll get this. Do this, you'll get this. And you come to Christianity, as I did as an agnostic, having studied the other religions, and discerned that similarity, expecting to find the same thing in Christianity. And I was absolutely flabbergasted to find out that in Christianity, I was told that Christ had done it. And he simply offered it to us. Christianity is a gracious religion. And then Paul has a second and very different example of God's election ready in verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, isn't that amazing? He uses Moses as his first example. And then who's his other example? Pharaoh. I, for scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So God's election was just when he had mercy on Moses 
And God's election was just when he hardened Pharaoh. Paul quotes Exodus 9.16 here, citing Pharaoh as an example of God's sovereignty, even over those who are hardened against him. God's power is displayed in judgment, he says. Why would Paul bring Pharaoh up? Well, because he's considering the question of how to understand those who are rejecting God and his will. So who in the Bible that they knew the Old Testament rejected God and his will? Pharaoh. He's like the clearest example. Isn't it ironic that Paul is using Pharaoh here for the pattern of whom? The unbelieving Jews of Paul's own day. Paul's conclusion to this part of his argument is here in verse 18. Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Paul concludes much like Exodus 33, 19, only adding the negative, taking in the example of Pharaoh. God has compassion and hardens as he will. Friend, do not charge God with injustice unless you know what he knows. I'm going to say that again because that's a much better sentence than you may have just realized. (laughs) Do not charge God with injustice unless you know what he knows. I don't have an answer to the problem of evil, but that's about the closest thing I have to it. So we've seen that God's Election has been said by Paul to, one, not be merely physical. Two, it's based in God's self. Three, it's just. Now, a fourth matter that Paul draws our attention to while we consider God's election. Number four, God's election is not, and let me just use the word for simplicity's sake, it's not relieving. Relieving. That is, it doesn't relieve humans of our responsibility. That's the objection that's raised in verse 19, that such a doctrine of election is relieving. But Paul goes on to deny this. God's choosing in no way relieves us of our responsibility. Though Paul really more asserts this and proves that, I think. This is what he says, verse 19. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who resists his will? Are we blameless then because God's will is irresistible? No, we we humans are responsible. But how are we held accountable if we can't do otherwise? How can this be just of God? John Stott, I think, wrote on this wisely when he said, if therefore God hardens some, he's not being unjust, for that is what their sin deserves. If, on the other hand, he has compassion on some, he is not being unjust, for he is dealing with them in mercy. The wonder is not that some are saved and others not but that anybody is saved at all. For we deserve nothing at God's hand but judgment. If we receive what we deserve, which is judgment, or if we receive what we do not deserve, which is mercy, in neither case is God unjust. Both mercy and judgment are fully compatible with justice. Friends, we know that even in this book of Romans, we are called to respond to the message of Christ. We're called to repent of our sins and to trust in him alone, as we were thinking about from Romans chapter four. Well, Paul's response to this question is to ask five more questions through the rest of the chapter. Let's move on to those now. We'll see a fifth thing that Paul teaches us about God's election, and this is number five, that God's election is revealing. And this is what we see in verses 20 to 23. 
And this may surprise you if you think of this topic as very confusing, uh, if it seems obscure. But scripture here teaches that God's choosing like this actually reveals himself. It tells us who he is and what he's like. God's election draws us to the fact that God is the creator of his people. We see that here in verses 20 and 21. In verse 20, we uh, have the first couple of questions in the series of questions. But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? So there's question one, who are you? Question two, what will you say to your creator? Paul's alluding to a couple of passages in Isaiah and saying essentially that man has no right to talk back to God. And the more we come to understand who God is, the more we come to understand who we are, I think the more we accept our own creatureliness, that we're not the creator. There is a difference, you know, parents, you must know this, between questioning and quarreling. Paul here is entertaining questions. He's not encouraging quarreling. There is a trust with questioning. Questioning comes out of curiosity, perhaps even excitement and anticipation. Are we there yet? Quarreling comes out of a contentiousness, a sense of knowing who you are or what you're about and objecting to it or even opposing you. Friends, we are creatures, not the creator. I've heard many people say that the first step in conversion is realizing that you're not God. Only God is God. He is more holy than you are. He is more loving than you are. My friend, the appropriate response to God's revelation of himself is Moses hiding his face or Job covering his mouth or Ezekiel falling to the ground or Isaiah confessing his sinfulness. None of this denies our dignity or our responsibility, but all of it expresses our humble recognition of the fact that we have been formed from the dirt by God. Paul goes on in verse 21. Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? So he asks this third question now about God's rights as creator. Again, you see that all three of these questions draw our attention to the differences there are between us and God. What Paul is saying here in the form of a question is that God as creator has every right. right. That is, he has the proper authority to make people for different purposes. And then he asks a couple more questions to show that God is the revealer of himself. Look at verse 22. What if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? So this is question four. What if God did this? Is Paul's way of saying that he did it. And so here we have God's revelation of himself in judgment. God does not need sin and evil to judge. God does not need to have an opponent. It is not necessary that sin and evil exist. But he will display his power and his patience by the means of those who oppose him. We read here that God shows his power and makes his patience known by bearing with great patience the objects fitted for destruction. In the Old Testament, during the plagues in Egypt, we find in Exodus chapter 8 and in 
Verse 10 there, that Moses agreed to ask the Lord to take away the frogs at a particular time. Why a particular time? The Lord says, so that you may know that there is no one like our God. A holy God's actions in wrath and judgment display his character. He is a good and holy and righteous God. And still he is patient. Still there is opportunity. Friend, everyone who's a non-Christian today who is alive is still in a time of apparent opportunity. Remember what Peter said, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. Just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. There's apparently more of God's power to be displayed in judgment than we have yet experienced in this life. So there's the judgments of God we see in this life which displays his wisdom. And yet, friends, there is an eternity of God's wisdom to be displayed in an eternity of his good and right wrath. And yet God will not only reveal himself in judgment. Look at verse 23. What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy whom he prepared in advance for glory? And this is his final question, the series of five questions. This is question number five. This is another what if God question. Only this one presents God's revelation of himself in salvation. God did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy. God wills to make his glory known to the objects of his mercy. God wills to have his mercy known and broadcast. As the psalmist said in Psalm 115, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. Friends, God's election reveals God's wrath and his mercy, his holiness and his love. Another matter we see, number six, God's election is international. God's election is international. We see this in verses 24 to 29. Some thought that God's election was a kind of tribal thing, that God's people would only be composed of Abraham's descendants physically. But Paul here shows us that God has never chosen along strictly ethnic lines. So in verse 24, he reveals that this what if questions in verses 22 and 23 were not mere hypotheticals, but they've been fulfilled in those whom God has elected. Because look at verse 24. Even us whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. So God has elected from both Jews and Gentiles. These are the ones from verse 23, whom God has called and prepared for glory. And Paul makes a point of that, that fact that some Gentiles are included. So in verse 25, he quotes Hosea 2.23. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. So God not only predicts that he will, but he has a long history of calling his people those who are not his people. That's, after all, how Abraham got his start. And then Paul quotes Hosea again, Hosea 1.10, showing that God calls his sons those who are not his people. Look there, verse 26. And it will happen that in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. So some Gentiles are included. At the same time, Paul wants to make his point that brings us back around directly to the question he first had in this long conversation. 
not all Jews are included. And that's why he quotes from Isaiah in verse 27. Look at verse 27. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. Now the point of that quotation is the only a remnant bit. Only a remnant of ethnic Israel would be saved. God's promises of judgment and of mercy would all be fulfilled. And then Paul quotes Isaiah 1.9 here in verse 29. It is just as Isaiah said previously. Unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been like Gomorrah. So just like with that remnant prophecy from Isaiah in uh, 10, Paul is citing a verse that shows that only a few will be saved. In, in this case, historically, it was Lot and his family. God's people have always been and always will be dependent upon God to fulfill his promises. So friend, you realize true Christianity is not to be associated with any one country or any one culture. It is not American. It is not Native American. It is not European. It is not Mexican. It is not Asian. It is not African. True Christianity is international, just like God's election. So our hearts should reflect that in our own prayers. In our churches, we should see that diversity that God has planned because God's election is international. Finally, we also see number seven, that God's election was predicted. And that's these last four verses, 30 to 33. God's election was predicted. It seems that this situation that Paul had encountered, at least as he had reflected on it, wasn't really a surprise to him at all because God actually predicted both the coming of the Gentiles and the stumbling of at least some of the Jews. And this is what the last four verses of the passage are about, the dividing point between those who would obtain righteousness and those who wouldn't was predicted. And that dividing point had now been shown to be faith in Christ. Faith in Christ. The same way that we would be justified, Romans 3 and 4. Look at verse 30. What then shall we say that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith? But Israel, who pursued a law of righteousness, has not obtained it. So Israel has not obtained righteousness, even though Israel had pursued it by the law. Why had they not attained righteousness? Look at verse 32. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. And then Paul returns to this theme that we thought about last night from chapter 2, chapter 3, of the insufficiency of religious rules, even true religious rules, to give us life. And so we read, Israel pursued righteousness by works. Some of you may have read of works by N.T. Wright, Tom Wright. I would just say here, Tom's understanding of first century Judaism seems to fail a little bit. Because here, there apparently were Jews in the first century unless Paul was wrong, that pursued salvation by works. Yes, Jews had an idea of grace, but there were also Jews who had an understanding of pursuing righteousness by works. 
As Paul put it, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. That stumbling stone that we realize from verse 33 is Christ. Look at verse 33. As it is written, see I lay in Zion a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who trusts in him, and then she calls the stone him, will never be put to shame. Paul quotes Isaiah showing that God's plan would include some falling and others trusting in God. Which, friends, if you turn back to chapter 9's beginning, verses 1 to 5, is exactly the situation Paul was contemplating in verses 1 to 5 with his countrymen. But the law was not the focus. And their best obedience was not the way. It wasn't then and it isn't now. Friends, faith, trust in Christ is and always has been since Paul wrote this letter. The only way to life. Oh, friend, I, I cannot imagine you sitting through six sermons inside on a beautiful weekend and paying to do so if you are not already trusting in Christ. But if that is you, trust in Christ. Trust in Christ. If you want to know what that means, talk to some of the people around you. You're in the best room you could be in in Albuquerque on a Saturday afternoon to figure out what it means for you to trust in Christ. So then, to the problem of Jewish rejection of the Jewish Messiah, Paul suggested the solution of understanding the election of God. And we've learned about God's election. I'm going to review all the points right now so you can look down and finish off your notes. Number one, God's election is not simply physical. Two, God's election is based in himself. Three, God's election is just. Four, God's election is not relieving of human responsibility. Five, God's election is revealing. Six, God's election is international. And seven, God's election was predicted. Why is all this important? Because it's true. And because you need to stop judging God. And because you need to realize that he will judge you. And because you need to realize your need for mercy. Do you? Now's the time. As one of the Puritans said, all is mercy on this side of hell. Let's pray. Lord God, you know the need we have to depend upon you completely. And you know the questions and even the quarrels we can have in our own minds with what you're like or what you've done or what you haven't done. Oh God, humble us before your word, we ask. Show us your goodness. Show us your mercy. Show us your love and your justice. Teach us. Give us the gift of trust in you. We ask in Jesus' name.